you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 4? To Philippians chapter 4. We're going to wrap up our series on identity this morning. And then starting next week, we get to one of my favorite times of the year, our elder series. And they're going to be preaching through the book of James over the next few weeks. Philippians chapter 4, we read verses 10 through 14. These are very familiar words, but I hope this morning to apply them in a fresh way. And hopefully this morning is the most practical yet of all three of the messages. Verse 10. This is Paul talking from prison. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that today you would show us Jesus. And I pray, Lord, as we see Christ exalted in heaven, that he would be exalted by our lives, that, Lord, we would be satisfied in him, content in him, filled by him, renewed by him. Lord, in all of our tendencies to be self-sufficient and to find resources within ourselves, I pray, Father, that instead we would look to Christ and to find in Christ every resource that we need to be able to flourish and to thrive in our lives. I pray, Father, those this morning who feel so lonely, those who feel so lost, those who feel so emptied, that today, Lord, they would be drawn to Christ and filled to the brim. I pray, Father, those who are filled with Christ but don't feel like they're filled with Christ, that today you would apply and that the gospel would renew their spirit and remind them of who they are because of him. Lord, do a great work among us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So it's distinctly human to reminisce, isn't it? That one of our favorite things to do is to be able to gather everybody up and Thanksgiving or at a, uh, at a holiday, a family reunion, even at funerals. Funerals seems like it happens very often there. It's an odd place. We, we typically regather together with people that we haven't seen for a long time but love a whole lot, right? And we sit and we tell stories about the good old days, right? We think back to when we lived in mom and dad's house. We think back to when we were kids playing with our friends or teenagers discovering what life was all about. Maybe we think back to when our kids were small and what that season of of life was like. And almost inevitably, at the end of those stories, even if it's not stated, the implicit point is this. I wish we could go back to a simpler time. I wish we could go back to a simpler time, a time in which we didn't have as much, but we had all that we need, a time in which we didn't realize exactly how fortunate we really are and how blessed we really are that now we can appreciate in retrospect. It's like the great theologian Andy Bernard once said, I wish that we could figure out how to recognize that we're in the good old days before we leave them. You know what's interesting? What's interesting is that if, I, if we were to look at most of our lives as we go back over those cherished memories and as we dream of what it would be like to go back and 
relive them again. By almost every metric of success, our lives are better off now than they were then. For many of us, we're more financially secure than we were then. For many of us, our lives are more established now than they were then. For many, you'll find yourself in a a nicer house than you lived in then, driving a, a better car than you drove back then. You perhaps have some plaques on your wall at home that show how long you've worked for the same company or the, uh, the standing that you've received, the accomplishments and the achievements. Your kids have uh, closets of dusty trophies that show off how successful that they've been. And yet, and yet, even though it appears that we're better off, even though it appears by every metric that we're more successful, That cry of our heart is that we're not as happy as we think we ought to be. That perhaps we're even less happy than we once were. Seems like we've bought the lies. You know, I love to bring things back to the context of those first three chapters of the Bible. And it seems like we've often bought the lie that Adam and Eve bought in the garden so many years ago. That the more that we have, the happier that we'll be. It turns out, actually, the inverse is often true. That the more that we need to be happy, the less happy we will actually be. That you may attain and acquire and accumulate for yourself all types of things, all types of accomplishments, all types of earthly treasures. You may experience great success in your relationships and great success with your kids and great success at the ball field and great success in your company or in the business that you've built from the ground up. And you may be on a trajectory of success, but it seems like, it seems like the higher you raise your standard of living, the more pressure there is to maintain that standard of living. The longer you're on a trajectory of of success, the more pressure you feel to maintain, sustain, and even eclipse that trajectory of success. And so you're not even actually able to enjoy the life that you have. You're not able to actually even savor the achievements that you've experienced. You're not able to really uh, enjoy all of the, the gifts of God that you've accumulated because you're so afraid you're going to lose them. Or you're so focused on getting the next one. And so... We've filled our lives with all of these things that we think we have to have to be happy. And we're afraid that if we lose any of them, we're not going to be happy. And we're so afraid of losing them that we are not happy. It's a recipe for misery, isn't it? In fact, it's a pathway of an identity crisis. That what we do is we begin to look at people around us and we start wondering, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why is it that I don't have within myself the ability to be happy and at peace? Why is it that I can get the promotion and still not be happy? Why is it that I can have my kids and still not be happy? Why is it that I can have the marriage I always dreamed of and still not be happy? Why is it I can have the house that I always dreamed and still not be happy? What's wrong with me? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4 that he's discovered the secret. And the good news is, friends, that the secret is an open secret. That he reveals to us how it is that we can know what it is to have a durable and lasting joy, a contentedness in the face of materialism that is so blatant and pervasive in our day. And so I want you to see from Paul here in Philippians chapter 4, two realizations for those who are in Christ. Two realizations for those who are in Christ that I hope will reset you and rescue you from this identity crisis and this question of what's wrong with me. The first realization that I want you to see is that you are not your situation. 
You are not your situation. Often, uh, we think about our lives and we recognize that very little about what ultimately shapes our lives do we have any real control over. You don't have any control over your parents. You don't have any control over to what country or what ethnicity you're born. You don't have any control over the socioeconomic level that your family is. You have no control over what your IQ will be or your level of giftedness in any particular area. You have no control over whether you're going to be born healthy or sick or if you're going to give birth to healthy children or children with special needs. And we could go on and on and on, couldn't we? And the reality is, is that all of these things of which we have no choice play a great role in shaping what our lives feel like, look like, what our experience is. And so we can come to begin to understand ourselves as being no more than our situation and our ability to cope with it. That we begin to define ourselves by the circumstances that we've experienced, by the hand that fate seemingly has dealt us. That is, we come to think of ourselves in terms of our needs and our neediness. And all of our lives become about how it is that we can overcome our neediness and satisfy our needs and, and meet our needs. But the problem is, is that our needs never end. They're always there. And so we wake up, we go to work, we make a living, we come home, we eat the food, we live in the house, we go to work, we make the living, we come home, we eat the food, we live in the house, right? And it seems like what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes from our perspective that we're chasing after the wind. That all of it seems to be vanity of vanity. And that's why Paul, Paul redefines how we understand who we are. Paul reshapes our understanding of our identity to see that we are not defined by our needs. That your needs don't have to define you. Now, it's interesting here because Paul is writing these words from a Roman prison, okay? So Paul is penniless. Paul's situation is not good. He is at the, at the mercy of his masters. He can eat when they say that he can eat. He goes hungry if they say that he can't go hungry. He has water if they give him water. He has no water if they don't bring him water. He is deprived of all of his social pleasantries. He's not able to be with his churches. His situation is awful. His needs are pervasive. And so it is shocking what Paul says to open up verse 10 here in this section of chapter 4 of Philippians. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. You know what he says? Okay, so here I am. I have no money. I have, I'm not with my friends. My, I'm not living in my home. I'm not with my churches. I'm not doing anything that I want to do. But I'm not in need. I'm not in need. Isn't that interesting? Now, it's not that Paul doesn't recognize that in some sense he has needs. Of course he has needs. He has basic human needs. He goes on to describe about that, to talk about that. Learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know what it is to be brought low. The, the, that carries with it the idea of living in deprivation. Paul is saying, I know what it's like to be deprived of the things that are basic to life. Of course he has physical needs. He goes on to talk about um, what it's like to be hungry, to be in need. He recognizes that within himself, he has to have water to survive. He has to have food to survive. He has to have shelter to survive. He recognizes that he has social needs to be with his friends. Here he is writing a letter to people that he loves from this situation. These, are, these things are not lost on him. So, of course, Paul recognizes that he has needs. 
But the difference is, the difference is, is that Paul chooses not to define himself by his neediness. That he recognizes that while he has needs, his needs are not ultimate. That his ultimate, most fundamental and foundational needs to who he is have been fully realized and satisfied by the purpose of Christ. So that he can look in the face of the prison guards, look in the face of great hunger, look in the face of a horrific situation and say, I'm here, I'm in prison, I'm hungry and thirsty, but I'm not in need. That is... That Paul will not be more or less than based on his situation. That whatever situation I am to be content. That his sense of neediness, his sense of satisfaction is not situational. That he is not going to be more or less content based on how much food he has or doesn't have. He's got no, not going to be more or less content based upon how other people think of him. He's not going to be more or less joyful regardless of what's happening in his relationships. He's not going to be more or less at peace regardless of what his financial situation is. That he has learned, even though he may be in need, even though he may be living a life in deprivation, that he is fully funded. He is entirely satisfied. That he is grounded and satisfied, content as a person. So here is Paul redefining for us what many of us have come to understand ourselves to be. Because this is the exact opposite of what modern psychology teaches us about ourselves. See, modern psychology teaches us to think of ourselves as a need cup. Look at my little coffee cup. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that cool? And so modern psychology says that basically what you are is you are a cup that needs to be filled. And so constantly you're worried about your fill level. Are you full enough? Are you depleting or are you filling? Are you empty or are you full? Are you good or are you not good? Do you have what you need or do you not have what you need? And we go to a number of sources, we'll just talk about four this morning, looking for ourselves to be full. That, In other words, that like a car thirsty for gas, and I drive a big old truck that's always thirsty for gas, we're always looking for the nearest filling station to come and to fill us up. Now, perhaps the most primary is love. In fact, a lot of psychologists call this the love cup. That what we need, if we want to be filled and we want to be healthy people and we want to be vibrant people and we want to be flourishing people, is we need relationships of love that is constantly filling us up. Now, of course, that begins for us as children. We need our parents to love us. And then we need our friends to love us. And then we need our, the opposite sex to love us. And then once we marry them, we need the, uh, our husband or our wife to love us. And then we need our kids to love us. And we need our colleagues to love us. And we need our church to love us. And over and over, we're going to our parents and going to our friends and going to our spouses and going to our children and going to our colleagues. And we're saying, will you please fill my cup? I'm depleting. I, I'm constantly, my levels are going down. I need you to love me so that I will be fuller. Now, a second category that we might consider is especially prominent for those who perhaps have been deprived of some of those loving relationships. Perhaps in your life you didn't get the love or the, admir or the, love or the, the nurture from your mom or your dad that you'd hoped for. Perhaps that the friends that you went to school with weren't really good friends at all. Or perhaps your, your spouse has left you left you high and dry, and so you may turn to another place, which is accomplishment. That what I want to do, if I 
don't have the love of my father, perhaps, is to catch the eye of my father by being the best ball player that I can be. If I feel like my mom is withholding from me nurture, then what I want to do is make the best grades possible so that maybe in some way she will acknowledge me. Or, or, or maybe it's just the simple ability to know that I'm doing better than someone else or I'm succeeding at something and that fills up my cup. We carry this forward into sports in, in high school or extracurricular activities or the ability to make a certain level on the ACT or the SATs. We go into college and it may mean that we're on the dean's list or we go into the workforce and it, it's based on how far we progress or we enter into the military and it's how, how, how high our rank gets and how quickly we progress through the rankings. And we go through and depending on how well we do, our cup is filled up by the sense of accomplishment. Another gas pump that we might run to is religion. Now this one might surprise you that I would put this on there, but very often, well, let me fix that there. Well, I wish I had an eraser. You know, that would be, that would be nice. Whoa. Well, that's great. I hit, that, I hit that button one too many times. But you guys are tracking me. All right, religion. That what we have, when we become to understand that we're not getting all that we need from love and we're not getting all that we need from accomplishment is that we have some sense that we need the transcendent in our life, that perhaps there's, there's a spiritual part of us that, that needs to be filled. And we want to be well-rounded people. We want to be healthy people. And so we begin to pursue. Now, for some people, they may go to yoga and meditation. Other people may go to Buddhism and karma and try to outweigh the good with the bad. Other people may come to try to attend Sunday morning church here at Iron City every opportunity that they can and come to every service they can and go on every mission trip that they can because what they want is to for their religion to in some way fill them up based upon how faithfully they practice that religion. Now, whether these are going well or not, often when they're not going well, we have a final place that we turn and that is to rebellion. Right? Rebellion is always an attempt to self-medicate. I want you to remember that. Rebellion is always an attempt to self-medicate. It's always an attempt to make yourself feel better. Now, you might use alcohol or drugs for that rebellion. You, might get, you may turn to opiates or uh, prescription painkillers. You may turn and, and decide you're going to abandon your family and go to a mistress, to an adultery, adulterous relationship. You may uh, decide that you're going to reject all of the values of your parents and not come home anymore. But there's this sense of rebellion that if nothing else is going to work, if all these other means are going to, if I'm still going to feel empty, then what I'm going to aim to do is just fill myself up on as many things as I want to try. And perhaps even if I don't feel full, I won't feel anything at all. Right? And so here we are as a need cup. And we're constantly going, constantly searching, constantly hoping to be filled. Well, what does that show us? That means that our contentedness is situational, doesn't it? It means that our fill level is situational. That if you had good parents, your level may be higher than somebody else's level. That, that if you have a good marriage, your level may be higher than someone. If you have a bad marriage, then what hope do you have? What if you have no marriage at all? What hope do you have? If you have children that are obedient and grow, well, you feel really good about yourself and you feel really good about your sense of self and you feel really full. But as soon as those kids begin to rebel, as soon as those kids begin to be disrespectful, then suddenly, suddenly all of who you are is up in flux and you aren't sure if you're, if you're dependent upon accomplishment and achievement. Well, when 
sports are going really well, you feel really good about yourself. But what if you're like me and you're not even a good second string player, right? You're going to feel really bad about yourself. What if you're not good at grades either? You're going to feel even worse about yourself. You're going and you're hoping to be, uh, to be filled in some way, but all the places that everybody keeps telling you to go, you tried band and you've tried sports and you've tried grades, and it turns out you just don't seem to be good at anything. You go into your job, people pass over you for the promotion. Your cup is depleted. You get the promotion. Your cup is full. Do you feel the insecurity of that, brothers and sisters? Do you feel the insecurity of that? That if what I am dependent upon is the circumstances and the situation of my life to make sure that I am satisfied, then I am never fully going to understand who I am, and I am never, ever going to feel full or content. It is chasing after the wind. It is vanity of vanity. It is a way to live a life of starvation no matter how much food is in your refrigerator. And Paul is here using his circumstances in prison to say, this is not the way of Christ. That Christ has purchased for us a filling. That Christ has purchased for us an identity that releases us from this concept of the needs cup. That your needs don't have to define you and your needs don't have to drive you. This is actually at the forefront of Paul's mind in Philippians chapter 4. You can see it there in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. You can see it again there uh, in verse 14 when he says, Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. He goes on and on. He says, you know, in fact... The, the fact that you're giving to me, my greatest pleasure that I take is that you're going to re- reap a reward from it because of your own generosity. That's not even because you're giving to me because I'm really not in need. What is he saying there? What he's making going to great lengths to tell this Philippian church is that I love you, not what you can do for me. I love you, what, not what you can do. I don't need you. I just need Christ. And because I don't live in need, because I do not define myself by my neediness, then what I want you to know is I don't need you. I don't love you because of how you can satisfy my needs. I love you just because I love you. All of my needs are taken care of. You see, what happens when we conceive of ourselves as a need cup is disables us from being able to love as properly and as purely as we ought to love. It disables us from being able to appreciate the good gifts, the jobs that we have, the accomplishments that we may or may not achieve or attain in this life. It disables us from being able to appreciate them in the light and in savor and enjoy them in the way that God intends for us to do so. Why? Because there's always an ulterior motive. There's always an ulterior motive. That if I conceive of myself as a cup that has these varying levels of of fill, and I come to you and I need you to love me, to fill me up, well then my love for you is really self-centered, isn't it? The kindness that I show you, the person that I portray myself to be to you, it may change a hundred times with a hundred different people. Why? Because I need that person to approve of me. I need that person to accept me. I need that person to love me because if they don't approve of me and they don't accept me, accept me and they don't love me, then my cup is going to be emptied. And so I can't love you purely because I need you to accept me back. I can't love my spouse in the way that my spouse deserves because my spouse's fundamental job is to fill my cup, not to receive my love. I can't place my children in the, 
in the right priority and love them in the way that they need to be loved so that they can be disciplined. Because if I discipline, what if they don't love me anymore? What if they don't like me anymore? What if they rebel against me? Then my cup might be depleted. Then I might be emptied. I can't have a a hard conversation with a brother or a sister to bring accountability into their life. Why? They might think lesser of me, and that might deplete me. It has nothing to do with my love for them. It disables our ability to love in the way that Christ has loved us. Because at the center of all of our love and at the center of all of our achievement and at the center of all that we obtain and at the center of all that we experience is not the glory of God. It is not the love of our neighbor. It is the love of ourselves. And so Paul says, Paul says, there's a different way for you to think of yourself. There's a secret. There's a different way for you to recognize that your identity is not based on your situation. That your identity is not the result of your needs. Your needs don't define you. Instead, God has assigned an identity to you. Jesus has purchased an identity for you. And he has filled your cup all the way to the brim. That you are not your situation. And you cannot be emptied. This is the second realization that I want you to take away today. If you are in Christ. Remember, these are realizations for those who are in Christ. That you cannot be emptied. Most people believe that the context for what Paul is writing here in Philippians chapter 4 was Stoic philosophy that was so pervasive in Rome at the time, and and Philippi was a province of Rome. And so being there and being familiar with the Stoic philosophy, they, they think that what they're looking for is really the backdrop of what the Stoics are always looking for. The Stoics, they believe that life... Uh, was built around your ability to flourish in life was your ability to not get high and low with circumstances, that you always remained steady, that you had an iron jaw by the force of your will and the wisdom of your ability to rationalize, that, that you could develop an ability to, to just be constant and always content and always sufficient within yourself, to have this idea, this concept of, of self-sufficiency. And so what they were constantly looking, these Stoic philosophers and these people that sought to practice Stoic philosophy, was a secret. How is it that I can find these resources within myself? How is it that I cannot let the death of my father or the death of my wife bring me so low? How is it that I can not let my poverty bother me so badly? What is the secret? Because this is what they say is my hope of happiness, and yet I, I seem to continually fail at this reality of Stoicism. And we must not misunderstand what Paul is saying in some form of Stoicism. That is not what he's talking about. Paul is speaking against it. Paul is saying, you've always been looking for the secret of contentment And I have found it. I have found it. In other words, he's saying, I have the gospel. I have good news for a hurting world. I have good news for empty vessels. I have good news for discontented people. I have good news for empty people. I have good news for them. I have a secret, and it's not much of a secret, that Christ has come. That Christ has come. That the secret that Paul has is that you are not enough, but Jesus is enough. You are not enough, but Jesus is enough. So there in verse 11, he says, in whatever situation I am to be content. This is a stoic word 
by definition. The, the idea of contentment, the very definition, the fundamental root of the word means to be self-sufficient. That I'm going to tap into inner resources. This sounds pretty familiar to us today, doesn't it? That I, I, I have this wherewithal within myself that I can tap into to find an inner strength that I can now face any situation, no matter how bad my hand has been dealt, no matter what my family is going through, no matter what my health is, no matter what my financial situation is, that I have within me the resources within myself to be able to face this down. And so the Stoics were so focused on self-sufficiency. And Paul is coming to them and he's saying, well, you're half right. You're half right. In fact, Paul takes their word, this is a stoic word, he takes their word, contentment, and he says, I'm going to redeem that word, and I'm going to show you that, that Christianity is actually the pathway to true contentment. That Christianity and Christ and the cross is actually the secret of true contentment. That they taught themselves that they need to look within. And Paul is saying, you need to look within only if you find yourself first in Christ. Because you are not sufficient, but Christ is sufficient. Who is Christ? Well, Jesus lived a life of deprivation, didn't he? He says, the Son of Man has no place to lay down his head at night. He didn't know where his next meal was coming from. He lived taking the form of a servant. Jesus was crucified and murdered because of his situation. His situation was not great. The hand that he seemingly was dealt was not a good one. His father, by all implications, died a young death. Jesus lived an atrocious situation, a situation that is unrivaled by any of our situation. And yet, brothers and sisters, Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus was resurrected. That is, Jesus overcame his deprivation. Jesus overcame his situation. Jesus overcame the hostility of his age. Jesus overcame every effort that the religious entities had to try to empty him. Jesus overcame all of those things, showing that within him, within him there is sufficiency to face the days. Within him there is sufficiency to deal with deprivation. Within him is the, is the ability to face your situation. And so if you are in Christ, Christ is in you. I am with you always to the ends of the age. And so this brings us to that famous verse, Philippians 4.13. How can I face abundance and need? How can I go when it's high or low? How can it be when I'm hungry or when I'm thirsty or when I've had plenty? How can I be content in all of these situations? That is the question that Philippians 4.13 is answering. Well, I can do all these things through him. Through him. I can do all these things through Christ, through his sufficiency, through his power, through his accomplishment, through what he has said, through what he has done. I can do all of these things, not through me, not through me, but through him. That Jesus is enough, and then because Jesus is enough, Jesus fills you. That's where we're getting at when he says, who strengthens me. I can do all these things through him, through his sufficiency. Because within me, inside of my inner person, inside of my inner man, there is the sufficiency of Christ. There is the glory of Christ. There is the power of Christ. There is the resurrected, resurrected dynamos of Christ within me, strengthening me, giving me strength that I ordinarily wouldn't have. You see, this verse doesn't mean what many of us have thought that it means. I can do all things through him who strengthens me doesn't mean that I can write that on my eye black and score five touchdowns, right? What it means is, is that if I blow out my knee and I never play another down of football, I have all that I need. It doesn't mean that I can go in and ace every interview 
It means that if I lose my job and I never get another one and I live my life at the hands of generous people, that I have all that I need in Christ. It doesn't mean that I can go and I can speak in front of a a large crowd and not be nervous and not fear blowing it. It means that even if you get booed off the stage, in Christ, in Christ you have all that you need. In Christ you have all that you need. That what he's doing here in Philippians chapter 4, 13 is he's helping teach us to reimagine this cup concept that we've been given. That we've been told to think of ourselves as a need cup, constantly to be filled. But what Paul is teaching us is that if we have Christ, he has already filled the cup. He has filled the cup to the brim, and the cup cannot be emptied. This is actually how he conceives of it in other places. That prayer that I prayed from you, Ephesians chapter 3, listen to how he lands that prayer for Ephesus. He says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Here is God, the one who speaks and the cosmos is created. The one who speaks and galaxies are flung. And what are you filled with? You are filled with his fullness. All that is in him is now that that is in you. You are filled to the brim with one who is far greater than you. There's no danger of you being emptied. There's no danger of you being emptied. He goes on, Romans chapter 5, verse 5, there at the bottom of the screen. He says, and hope does not put us to shame. How can we be certain that our hope that we have in Christ for the next life? How can we be certain that our hope that we have that all that I accumulate here is not as good as my life is going to be? How can we have, be certain that the hope that we have that a mansion has been prepared for us is actually the truth? What is the hope? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Remember what Jesus said? She said, it's good for me to go away. Because when I go away, I am going to send a helper to you who is going to bring to your mind what I have taught you. Who is going to help you through the days of trouble. Who is going to fill you with my strength and fill you with my power and fill you with a passion for my glory. That I'm going to send to you the very presence of my spirit. That you would have me with you always to the very end of the age. That he is helping us to reconceive of what this hope, what this cup concept is. That it is not situational going up and down. It is not dependent on how rich or poor you are or how successful or what a failure you are. It's not dependent on how good your grades are or they aren't. It's not dependent on what you put on the scoreboard or what you don't or what you make on the ACT or what you don't. It's not dependent on how good your parents were. It's not dependent on whether or not you get married or you don't. It's not dependent on any of those things. That all of this is found entirely in Christ. And y'all, that gives us a sermon that we can preach to yourselves. In fact, this is what I probably say to myself as much as anything else when I think of gospel hope. When we go into situations where we are tempted to want to shrink back, when we go into situations in which we are tempted to be discontent, when we go into situations when we're tempted to be met with to fear being met with disapproval or a lack of acceptance, what can we say to ourselves? My cup is full. So you can go and you can have the hard meeting that you have to have. And whether that person accepts it or receives it or not, you can turn down the temperature inside your brain. Why? Because you, your cup is not dependent upon their acceptance. Your cup is full. You go into a job interview and you're 
feels like your whole life is hanging in the balance depending on what your performance is in that interview. You don't have to fear the employer. You don't have to fear the interview. Your need is not, your neediness is not dependent upon their situation. Your cup has been filled. You face you face a test. You face the sickness of your parents. You face the sickness of your child. You face your own sickness. You go and you have to go to the PET scan and see where cancer might be in your body. And you're, you're prone to tremble and be sick at your stomach. And you can go in there and you can say, it does not matter what the scan says. My cup has been filled. Do you see how much more secure that is, brothers and sisters? Do you see how much more secure that is? That... You are not based on your neediness, but on Christ's sufficiency. That Jesus is enough, and so Jesus fills you. And because Jesus fills you, Jesus releases you. There's a cause and effect here. Jesus releases you. That, again, we're reminded of what Paul's point here is in writing all of this to the Philippian church. That he wants them to know that his love for them, his passion for them, his devotion to them... It is not dependent on whether or not they give to him or they don't. It is not dependent on whether or not they provide food for him. It's not dependent on whether they provide resources in them. That he loves them because he loves them. So how is this possible? This is possible because he has already been filled. See, what happens when your cup is filled is the arrows reverse direction. You see this? Before, I was almost emptied and I needed you to pour into me. I needed you to have enough left at the end of your day to fill my love cup. I needed to have at the, you to have enough within your day to make sure that I feel appreciated. I needed to be successful enough at my job. I can't appreciate my job. I can't enjoy my job. I can't even deal with my job because I need my job to fill my cup. But now when the fullness of God has been poured into me, now when my situation is, is rock solid in Christ, now when I don't define myself in terms of my neediness, now my cup runneth over. So now I can actually love my kids. I don't need their approval so I can love them. I can discipline them if I need to. I, I can teach them difficult things. I can, I can teach them the Christian faith. I can cause them to come to church. And my fear is not that they will turn away from me. My fear is that they are, lo- my concern is only that I love them. My love is now pouring out of me rather than having to be poured into me because I already have Christ. I already have Christ. What about my spouse? Well, now I can really focus on caring for them. I can deny myself. I can, I can put, the, put aside my needs and my wants and all of the things that typically wrap us up in marriage and send us into a tailspin. And I can focus on, no, what is the best way for me to love her? What is the best way for me to love him? What is the best way for me to show that to them? I can love my church family. I can love my friends and my neighbors. And it's a pure and proper love because my greatest need is not for them to love me back. My greatest need at this point is to show them how God has already loved me. To show them how God has already loved me. I can begin to serve in my church with a pure and proper heart. That I'm not serving in my church so others will think highly of me. I don't need that. My cup is full. I can serve in my church not because I need in some way to feel good about myself. I don't have to worry about feeling good about myself. My cup is already full. I can serve in my church because Christ is in me. And Christ has filled me. And I love him as a result of it. Now I can um, savor and appreciate the job that I have. Because I don't have to have the job. It's a gift from God. Even if it's not the job that I would choose out of a thousand jobs, it is a gift from me, from God to me, that provides for me. I can savor that. 
Now I can rest. Everywhere that I go, I don't have to be on the lookout for how I can get my next high. Everywhere I go and every person I meet, I don't have to worry about what their opinion is. Everywhere I go and everything I do, I don't have to worry about putting my best foot forward. I don't have to worry about making sure that I always make the best grade. I don't have to worry about cheating on chess because my security is not based on that score. My security is not based on their opinions. I can actually rest in interactions with other people and in tasks that are given to me because, because I'm already, it's already settled. I'm full in Christ. My cup runs over. And so now the love that is coming out of my life is a delight and a joy and an aroma to our Heavenly Father. I'm able to care for other people the way Christ cares for me. Not only does it release you to really love, it releases you to really enjoy your life. To really enjoy your life. Here's what I mean. Life is meant to have sweeteners given by God to us. James tells us that. Every good gift is from the Lord. But what happens when we get those, those, and we saw this a little bit last week with that identity pyramid, right? What happens is when those sweeteners become the main thing, it disrupts all of our lives. So now, these are tea bags, okay? I'm just telling you what they are because they don't look like that. I'm not very good at drawing. These are tea bags. Now is my family, Right? I can love them the way they deserve to be loved. And if I lose someone in my family, it hurts. If I lose a child, it's devastating. Life is less sweet. But I haven't lost my life because my life is in Christ. This is sweetener. If I never get married, my identity is not compromised. Because, yes, a husband or a wife, those are great gifts from God. But I'm totally filled in Christ. And there are other ways that Christ will make my life sweet. My husband leaves me abandoned and with the kids. Yeah, life is less sweet. It's harder. But my life is not lost. My life is not lost. The same with my job. If I lose my job, I haven't lost my life. I haven't lost my sense of identity. There was a time four or five years ago that if you would have asked me who I am, I would have told you I'm the pastor of Iron City. And if something would have happened to me being the pastor of Iron City, I would have lost any concept of who I am. But that is not fundamentally who I am. Who I am is in Christ. In Christ. A child of the living God. And if I never preach another sermon, if this is the last day that I serve my church, I am no less who I am. My life may not be as sweet as it once was, but my life is just as certain as it has always been. We can go and we can think about our kids. We can think about our hobbies. We can think about our health. All of these things are sweet. None of these are our lives. So I want to ask you, who are you? Who are you? Are you full or are you empty? Are you searching or are you satisfied? Because this morning I want to offer to you the same thing that Paul found, Christ. Christ. Would you come this morning and place your faith in him? Would you come this morning and place your hope in him? Would you come this morning and be received by Christ and you receive him, that you would be in him and he would be in you, that you might be filled to the brim? Maybe you already know Jesus. And you may know this to be true, but your heart hasn't been accepting that much lately. And it doesn't feel like it's true. This morning, would you come and lay down before Christ 
and say, I am full, my cup is full, Jesus is sufficient, and let the Holy Spirit minister to you. However the Lord sees fit, would you come? Let me pray for us. Have a time of Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.